Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. The Killer Women Vodcast is pleased to be a part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. To learn more about Danielle and her books, visit her at www.daniellegirard.com and to access all of our vodcasts, go to youtube.com forward slash authors on the air. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to Killer Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with 4 million listeners. I'm your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Sandra Brown. Sandra is the author of 69 New York Times bestsellers, including the number one Seeing Red. There are over 80 million copies of her books in print worldwide, and her work has been translated into 34 languages. Sandra lives in Texas, and her newest book, Overkill, is out August 16th. Welcome, Sandra. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. Enjoy being here with you. Oh, it's such a treat. And then we have to say, because Sandra and I talked about this, that something is going on with her camera today. So she has this beautiful purple tint to her. Um, and actually, it's everybody who's not, who's only listening should take a look because her, her shirt is actually black. Um, and it looks... It shows up TCU purple. At least it's my alma mater's color, but... Exactly. So it's black and her gorgeous red hair has a little of a purple tint right now as well too. So, and her chair looks purple. So we could not figure out what, what exactly to do about that. But so we're going to roll with it, which just says, if that doesn't speak grace on Sandra's part, right from the get-go, which of course is what we would, we know to expect. Um, I don't know what does. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. First off, Wow. Let's talk about Overkill. Can you tell our listeners and watchers a little bit about your new book? Well, Overkill is about a uh, NFL football player, uh, Super Bowl MVP, and he gets some terrible news dumped on him right away. And uh, as it turns out, through legal loopholes and a set of circumstances of which he is unaware, um, he is still the uh, medical power of attorney on his ex-wife <laughs> who uh, has suffers an assault, an attack, and is, for all intents and purposes, brain dead. And he is still the one having to make the decision whether or not to pull the plug, to put it, put it cruelly. And um, so this kind of, you know, upsets his life, to, uh, needless to say. And it goes downhill from there. <laughs> That's it, the bright part of the story. <laughs> it really, and, and to make, I mean, to make it really clear, right, this isn't like a, they weren't, it was like a long-term marriage. I mean, yeah. right, they it were, was a, they were, it was a 10-month marriage, uh, very volatile, Yes. And they were the celebrity couple. They were the fodder for, uh, think if Kim Kardashian and Tom Brady got married. That was, that would be about like it would be. That's, a, and, that's uh, yeah. They had this tumultuous divorce, uh, scorched earth divorce, I think I called it in something. And, um, and, and now he hadn't even seen her in five years. And he gets brought into this terrible moral dilemma not of his making right. and has to has to um act on it with the whole world watching by the well, way well that's really that that's what makes it so interesting is that this i mean such a like you said it's a moral and personal it'd be a horrible dilemma for anybody but of course you know the media is going to slay him no matter right. what he does because uh, right. that's what the media does best so um and not only the media but whatever decision he makes um, it's going to provoke an opinion from everyone. Right. And, and so whether you would be uh, uh, for him doing it, uh, be merciful, or if you are for reasons of religion or whatever stance you have, is, is so diametrically opposed to doing it, to taking a human life when it's not sanctioned. Um, and, and so no matter what decision he makes, it's a lose-lose. It's, right. it's going to offend 
a great number of people. Exactly. And he's under the microscope, you know, with a spotlight on it. So. And to make matters more interesting, right? We have the the man who who committed this assault, who's now just getting out of prison after a very very short stint. Um, right. You know, considering sort of his. Um, his crime. And and one of the things that I thought was really is super interesting is this book is based on an aspect of criminal law that I did not know about. Mm -hmm. Um, We we all know about double jeopardy, of course, that you can't be tried for the same crime twice, but Mm -hmm. but overkill features another, and I don't know if there's a a term for the the law that it talks about. Yeah. I, I came across the, a year and a day rule and it was kind of this standing common law that if someone lived a, li- a year and a day beyond an attack, then the culprit was off the hook. And um, But only in the past few decades have people said, wait, this is not right. And it, it came up so recently um, with the, the Hinckley, when Hinckley was released from prison for shooting James Brady and incapacitating him for the rest of his life. And when he was released, a lot of the Brady family and his, you know, his estate got up in arms and they said, wait a minute, he died as a consequence of this, you know, his Mm -hmm. health continued to deteriorate until he ultimately succumbed. And so that attack was the the reason for it. But the, this law that they could go after an attacker after a year and a day had not gone into effect. Mm -hmm when that crime was committed. So Hinckley did not have to face any any further charges. So it's it's very recent in terms of turning it around. And I don't really know if there was a legal term. I didn't come across a legal term. It was just that that person can be tried or, or charged and tried for another crime, a more severe crime. Right, like murder, right? Like, like murder. And I thought that was really interesting. Manslaughter, you know. Yeah, man, right, exactly. No, you're right, absolutely, absolutely right. Of course, crime novelists, we have to know the difference between manslaughter and murder. That's absolutely right. So this is, so, so as this, is this how the idea came to you? You sort of read, the, you read about um, a year and a day or... Yes, uh, you probably know as novelists yourself, you start with one thing and then when you start researching, you find out all of these other tangential things and and it's like, gosh, that's really interesting. I didn't even know that aspect of it, but I'll certainly use it. And so what got me thinking about the idea in the first place was during COVID and when families were being, I mean, just tortured into having to make the ultimate decision about a loved one uh, who might not have had good odds of recovery, having to be taken off a ventilator that could possibly save the life of a child, of, of someone who didn't suffer other health, you know, problems. And I just thought, gosh, what a, you know, what a dire, um, decision to have to make and under any circumstances but certainly that and so that really got me thinking and and then about that circumstance to begin with and then to make it worse um to be doing that in a public spotlight if you were a celebrity if everybody knew your name if the president of the united states was having to make that kind of decision you know if if he was charged with making medical decisions for his wife or his children or whatever um what would you do what would you do or if you were just a normal human being that you know didn't have a high public profile it would be bad enough but if you were a celebrity and everybody in the world knew what you were doing at any given time, then you would be making such a horrible decision in a public arena. Well, that's what I love. It's like so clear how your brilliant mind is working here, right? You found it. No, I, I think I want to follow it through because I, I admit it's it's so it's like so illuminating to see sort of inside that 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 head. You found a scenario that is dev- that would be devastating for you know for all of us. Um, 
and then you said what would make it worse is right. if our main character who has to make the decision is a public figure what would make it worse is if the marriage was really short and kind of miserable and he didn't you know, it like wasn't her. somebody he didn't like her. He didn't <laughs> even like her at the end. Um, right. So I thought that that is just what a great example of how, you know, a really successful book ratchets up all the places um, to make the stakes as high as they can be. Well, and then, um, then the herald of the bad news, uh, who is Kate Lennon, the state prosecutor who wants to go after the attacker who's been let out of jail is not someone, you know, it wasn't some unattractive old man that Zach would never, he would say, get lost, you know, whatever. Uh, and even if he, he, if he agreed with him legally, that would be the end of the problem. But to compound his problem, the, he calls her an angel-faced herald of hell, right? And uh, and, and and she does, you know, she's very attractive, and they have this immediate chemistry that both try to fight. So while they're, you know, while they're trying to fight the villain of the book, they're also fighting their own attraction, which is a little beyond the pale. Uh, but it, it's either ethical or it's not, and. Right. It, like being, you can't be a little pregnant, you know, you're either pregnant or you're not. And, mm -hmm. and so it's, um, so now they're confronted with how do we handle this while we're trying to deal with all these other issues? So, you know, right. and, and we talk about that, like, so, I'm sorry, I missed that. Their attraction becomes public too. So yes, it does. <laughs> and they have that. Well, and not only is she, you know, attractive and young, she's so bright right she is a force to be reckoned with so she's not going to be pushed off of her her purpose well, yeah. easily um and and the what you know the sort of what you're one of the many things you're famous for is your is that sexual tension i get shivers actually just as soon as i said that from the very first time they meet right it is like oh boy and he's not a <laughs> He had one bad marriage. It, he has not gotten involved with, you know, women after that. He's definitely been like, that did not go well. I'm not doing this again. So, you know, they're, and she's like, I'm a professional. This is what I got to do. So of course they're, neither is a willing participant. Um, Each is the other's worst nightmare. <laughs> yes, exactly. And again, that's what makes this, that was what makes everything, you know, so, so fun to, to follow through. So um, I want to hear about your process. Cause I, I mean, you're, you know, you're thinking about, um, I, I, first of all, I heard, I think there's a thriller fest, I think before the COVID that I was sitting with a group of authors and I think it was Steve Barry and it was a mutual admiration. We were all admiring Sandra Brown. And I think he was saying that you literally work 11 months, a, you only take one month off a year and the rest yeah. of the time you are working. Just about, yeah. Just and so, about. Do you work, are you, is it a Monday through Friday? You're in the office sort of like a, a or how do you, so how do you structure your time? Well, when I, when I first started writing, I had little kids at home and I mean, I celebrated big time when both of them got into elementary school for a full day. And I, and so I would, I would uh, start as soon as I got home from taking them to school at 8.30 and then I'd write like a, you know, with a frenzy until 3.30. And then I had to become, you know, put on a different cap. And it was soccer mom, choir mom, dance class, scouts, wh whatever they were into at the time. And, um, but I used, I compressed the time I had. I, I thought I've got to write, you know, before I become mom and I have to cook dinner and all get right. baths and all that other stuff. We all know those stories. Yes, yes we do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, um, I, I think because of that, I structure my day still. I'm not an early riser. These people that get up at 4.30 in the morning and write till 8.30, so I don't even get them. I, I just yeah. totally do not get that because I'm not a morning person. But um, I kind of structured my day, you know, around the school day because that's how for how many years I had to write. And, um, and so I go to work. I do have an off. This is I have to, well, I'll explain that in a minute. This is my new home 
this room has not been decorated yet. <laughs> so well, I just put props in the background to make it. Oh, well, it, it looks fabulous from where we are. And then I turned purple. Uh, but anyway, um, I do have an office at home. And this, when this room is redone, it will be a study library mm -hmm. office officially. But I also have kept an office outside the home. And I have two employees. And they do everything but write the books. But uh, I go to work every day. I go to work. I physically go to work every day. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and that started because so many people did not take it officially. You know, they would call friends, even family, and they, what are you doing when I'm writing? Oh, and then they proceed to talk for 30 minutes, you know, whereas if I'd been a nurse or if I had been a lawyer, it, 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 they wouldn't have walked into the courtroom and said, I need to tell you something about, you know, the dinner on Friday night. That it, it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. But when you're working at home and you're a writer, it's like, well, she can do that anytime, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what, if I, if I get an office, that's going to make it look so much more official. <laughs> so I did. And I've been working out of an office then ever since it was about three years into my career, I went it's, to work every day. It's smart. You got dressed. There's something also about getting dressed, right? Yeah. Um, oh, so I got so lazy during COVID because, you know, you can wear your jammies and, and for the first two months of it, I was even away at, uh, from home. I had gone to, um, I have a place in South Carolina that I just kind of retreat and write. And I got stuck there. I couldn't get home because it was a two-day drive. So I would have had to stay in a hotel along the way. And that was when everybody was saying, don't go to a hotel. I couldn't fly because they were canceling all the flight. So I just stayed for two months in the house by myself. I got my groceries delivered. And I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot during that period of time, but I would find, you know, I just shuffle around in my pajamas all day. And it was like, what difference does it make? <laughs> Nobody is seeing me. So exactly. I kind of got lazy oh. during that period of time. But I do wonder, like, so was that, how was that different? Like in some ways, you know, you, like you said, you had so much, you had more time than you normally would have had, but were you, you know, does it take a schedule to kind of help you with your productivity? Or did you find you were still able to just put the hours in and do it exactly the way you would do it at home. And you're, you're now, you've been doing, you're a professional, you've been doing this so long. Um, but when well, you, yeah. I, I, um, I don't really set myself such a rigid schedule. I do go to work every day, but you know what it's like. You're, you're doing things like this. You're doing uh, business and I don't enjoy the business. So when I get, you know, th things that I have to pay attention to, stop, stop the creative process and deal with something business-wise, I really kind of am stingy because I, I really want to just be doing the play-like. Yeah. <laughs> I really no, want to I... do the make-believe stuff, not the, the, not the real stuff. And anything that draws me out of the story right. and gets me away from the story, I kind of resent, you know, in a way. But then the business is essential, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, so um, it, it's an it's it's you know a hazard, but you have to deal with it. And I do it with you know as uh, without as grudgingly <laughs> as I can possibly be. But um, I, if I don't write, but you know five pages in a day, but they were damn hard to write, then I, I let up on myself for not writing 10. And sometimes 10 pages can happen in just a few hours. And then sometimes 10 pages takes four days. It just depends on, you know, the scene I'm trying to write. And, and when I'm doing the first draft, um, if it's not, if I know it's not perfect, I've forced myself to go on, leave it okay. there. It's there. It's something you can play with. Because I rewrite, 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 rewrite every scene. I don't know how many times. Sometimes it'll be three or four. Sometimes it'll be 12. And um, it shows. It shows in your final draft. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, actually, you know, I, I have a, there's so many thoughts in my head. But but while we're talking about that, I guess I wanted to say, I know that you, I, I, you know, I've watched some interviews and read some stuff. It sounds like you aren't exact. You're not really a plotter. Um, 
You sort of listen to the characters about what they say to do. So sometimes the hard work, the hard pages are because, is it because the story, the characters aren't really talking about where they're going? They're standing there looking at me like, what? What do we, you're the one that's supposed to tell us what to do, you know? And I'm going, do something, say something so I can write it down. Because I really do kind of put them in a, in a, you know, situation. And I see it as though they're actors in a play. And when one of them walks over to the chair and slumps into it, that's what I write down. Uh, But then, you know, of course, you have to abide by the rules of storytelling. You you do have to abide by the rules of plotting. And so it sounds kind of cavalier to say, oh, just write down what they hear and say, you know, what I hear them say and do. But that, but it goes beyond that because you have to have certain, or at least I have to have certain peaks in the story. And I know when I'm approaching, I call it like the 125 page flip. Mm-hmm. And it's up to that point, the protagonist has been protesting the call to action. Yeah. No, oh, no, no. And they're lining up all these reasons why, no, I'm not doing it. I don't want to get involved. This is a, but something has to happen at about page 100, 125, where there has to be a flip in their thinking. And they say, well, okay, I'll give it a try. Still doubting that they can, you know, overcome whatever problem it is. So, and then there's another peak that comes halfway through the book where the reader's going one way and all of a sudden it's a reversal, you know? So all of these things I try and built in when I'm kind of sort of plotting, I think, okay, this would be a good first turnaround. This would be a good second turnaround. This is when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and then this is when, you know, he or she figures a way to overcome it. Um, so I, I kind of know the rules of plotting and I apply them. But when I sit down to write, even if I've written out a, a synopsis or a, an outline, I never look at it again. Because at that point in time, I think if these people aren't real enough to figure out their own problem, then they don't deserve to be on the page. <laughs> that is right. That is great. How do we, and you do, and that's another, you do that. Enough, are they clever enough to, to work this out, you know? And, and if they're not that interesting, then they don't need to be there. <laughs> well, I, so let's talk about, you know, your finished product. Cause I, you know, the idea that you would, you know, say, okay, the scene is, this is what the scene is, you know, supposed to accomplish. It's down. It's not, I'm not exactly happy with it. Right. I'm not, it's not done. And then you go back and sort of revise and revise. And I think I also heard you say you sort of, when you, you know, start sometimes, a, um, you know, a new day or new part, you go back again and sort of work through whatever had been written before. So you're one of those sort of, you, it goes, you go over it and over and over it. And one of the things I think is so impressive um, is that, you know, for somebody who has published, you know, 80 million copies in print, um, we watch these sort of big time authors, you know, like yourself. And a lot of times as the books, we get further down in their career, the books get a little bit, uh, and I'm not, not to be, you know, I'm not criticizing, but I'm not, I am criticizing, I suppose, but not, not anybody specifically. But I notice that sometimes the books get a little bit less tight. The, you know, the, the work, it's not as, it's not as, fabulous and as some of those early books and I always wonder is that because editors think well I'm not gonna edit you know Sandra Brown she's this massive star I'm just gonna let you know her work go through but you your books are as sharp as you know tight and and the characters as sort of on point as they've always been so what's the trick to not being like well I mean I'm gonna sell a million copies of this book so you know why don't you work so hard if there's a trick, the trick, uh, uh, it, it's a technique that I apply, and that is to challenge myself to do something different with each book, build in something I've never done before, and um, and it can come, sometimes it is intentional, sometimes, other times it's, it's um, it just comes organically, and I'll go, oh, I've never done this and it's hard to do. Why is this so hard? And then think, because I've never 
exactly done this before. And but I think I think the worst thing that can happen to a, an author is to start believing in their own success. I, I scale a wall of fear every single day I come to the keyboard that I won't have another sentence. I won't have another idea. I won't have another interesting character. And every day it's as if I'm doing it for the first time. And it scares, it, it scares me to death that everybody's going to find out that it's a fluke, that it, that I'm an <laughs> imposter. So I really have that imposter complex, mm-hmm. but uh, and it's something I have to work on because if I don't, then it just completely overwhelms me and then I get paralyzed. But um, so I look at the wall of, of the bookcases that aren't up yet. <laughs> Because I've only lived here for three weeks. Oh, so, my gosh. I'll look at the bookcases and I'll think, okay, I've done this in the case of Overkill. I've done this 84 times. I I know how to do this. But when I start book 85 in a few weeks from now, I will be sitting here going, I, I, I don't know how to do this. And I, I think any author worth their salt, truly, would have to admit on some level, I don't know how I do it. Right. You know, because you're asked every day, how do you get the ideas? I don't know where they come from. If I knew that's what I'd sell, I wouldn't have to sit here 11 months of the year and write. I could just sell that and it would be the fairy dust, you know, but I think every author, if they're really honest with their reader and with their audience or whatever, and with themselves, it's like, you don't really know where you got this. You can apply a name to it, like talent, instinct, a vivid imagination, certainly, um, all of that. But then also it takes a, a certain kind of person to isolate themselves and to put words on paper. I don't know a shortcut. I've been doing it for a long time, over 40 years. I don't know a shortcut to sitting down and putting one word at a time on on paper, you know? And um, so to anyone out there who might be listening and aspires to write, be willing to work your butt off. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard work. Well, I want to, I want to, so I want to repeat that. So when you say, you know, when Sandra Brown says every day she scales a wall of fear, uh, it's a really, it's, it's a true, it's an absolute true phenomenon. And if, you know, I think, well, you know, I, you know, I published 15 books. I, I know what I'm doing, but, um, I'm glad to hear that when I get to 80, I don't know that I'll get there, Sandra, but if I got to 85, that is this, that is that is exactly where you are. You just think, because it's a little bit of magic. I believe that the sort of where those ideas come from and how the voices in your head get you, you to the end. You asked me about, you know, how do you keep the writing fresh? And I said, there was something I had to do um, in this particular book. I knew I wanted to write about the moral, the moral dilemma. Uh, how do I write a book like that and still make it a novel of suspense and give it that thriller aspect? How can I build in that ticking clock, you know, that a that a thriller has to have? So merging those two types of reads. Right. was my challenge on this. So I I had two antagonists. I had Evan, who was vile, but he was really kind of a personification of the real villain of the story, which was Zach's conscience. Right. That's the real villain of the story because he has to wrestle with this dilemma that he's in. And because of, you know, all of the pressures from all different sides, even from Kate saying, if you really want to get this guy, if you want him to, then the irony is you've got to kill her. And so so the the real villain, if you just peel away all of the other stuff, is Zach's own conscience. And I think that that is what the reader will more identify with, because if 
a reader, if anybody was in Zach's position, that's what you would be fighting. Right. That's what and that's in little ways, in little ways, we fight that battle all the time, us against ourselves about you know, all sorts of decisions we make that are not, of course, nearly. But it's not just Eben who was our attacker, um, who is, like you said, absolutely vile. Um, you know, he had several accomplices who are also, you know, different levels of gray morality wise. And the woman, you know, his ex-wife's um, father is a big yep. part of the story. And, you know, yep. he has his own uh, agenda, of course. Um, it's so interesting. I mean, I think you, you're, you're really right. It's because this could have been a very sort of slow, agonizing um, story about, you know, because this woman's been on life support for four years. It's not like it just happened. Yeah. So it would have been, it would have, I, I had to figure out how to, how to merge those two to give it that, to give it energy, to give it propulsion. It couldn't just be him sitting there, you know, staring into his whiskey going, I don't know what to do, I, you know, because we've all been there too. <laughs> right. Yes. But I mean, it, but um, I, it had to have the action. It had to have, uh, you know, the action uh, and and the real clear and present danger and the ticking clock and the clock kept changing, but it was a, a next ticking clock and then the next ticking clock and and so on. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that it works. I mean, and then and Evan, you know, thankfully for Evan, he's now that he's out of jail. Also, we have this sort of what's that guy going to do? Is is he going to get involved? You know, because um, if he, you know, if if this woman dies, then the you know his life is in a bit of a pickle too. Right. Yeah. Right? He was feeling the pressure too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Every, the pressure, and that's the sign of a really well done thriller, right? The pressure's on everybody, and it's on Kate because. You know, you know, she's she's is interested in this man. Clearly, she shouldn't be involved with because of his involvement in this case. She wants to get this bad guy. She's got her own life story, right? Yeah. I mean, she's got her own stuff, and and so everybody's feeling the pressure. Which, of course, all centers back on poor Zach, who's like, I just want to live in my mountain house um, and pull and the covers over my head. I love the line uh, that Bing Bing is his former coach. Um, and, um, and, and in the, in the story, he's the, um, archetypal mentor. And I loved when, when he, when he says to Zach, um, you caved like a rookie and, and that is what Zach had done. And this, you know, this angel faced herald of hell comes to him and says, it, it ain't over yet. You're, you're not out of it yet. And that's his worst nightmare. Right. That's his, the worst thing that could happen to him. And, um, and, and I, I really love the way that being said, and he, he said that I, I didn't make that up. He, I, know, I, I love heard, it. I love it when you say that. And he said, you caved like a rookie. And that would be something that a former coach, you know, would say. And, um, but, but he kind of, he put it, I mean, he hit the nail on the head, you know, Zach had retreated. It was a, a sort of an act of cowardice. I mean, he was also deferring to her parents and that was a kindness. And there was another reason, which we won't disclose here, why he backed off the decision. Um, but then he goes and, and hides for five years, you know, until Kate shows up and says, mm -hmm. nah, you, you ain't out of this yet, you know. And I, you do such a one. You must be a football fan because you do oh, such really? a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> job of you know really because it can, you know a football player like and being of course as that mentor who is also an, another wonderful character. They have a language that people talk you know when they're in that business and you you feel that really threaded through the analogies and just you know that's that's what that that's what they the language that they how they communicate and so so beautifully done so i'm guessing you're you know you're you're a football uh, fan football fan you know i was raised on football and, <laughs> and i'm a big fan and the season starts soon just within weeks so <laughs> oh that is so exciting so i have a question for you because you know like you said 40 years i can't believe you obviously started writing before you got out of diapers because um <laughs> but um 
But basically, um, when you know, when you started in this business, it, it, and even when I started, my first book came out in two thousand. It was, it felt like a very different business. Um, it felt very, but it, I imagine, you know, even more so, you know, male dominated, right? I mean, um, well, you so how different does it feel to you, sort of, for female authors who are starting now, or you know, how your books are edited and received now versus versus what it was like when you started. Well, there's still, uh, you know, I feel it not so much from publishers or editors because um, I've worked with both male and female editors and I've always, you know, I had just been blessed with fantastic editors. Um, but um, I feel it not even so much from people within the industry now mm -hmm. as I do with readers. And I still have readers who say, well, I've never read one of your books. I don't read stuff like that. And it'll be like, well, uh, how, do, how do you know if you've never read one, what it is like? <laughs> right. And well, and, and they get a misconception. They see the cover on the back of the book. They see, you know, this, this Southern woman that talks like I do. And it's like, well, she can't know anything about, you know, men and how they think. Well, most of my books are now written from the male point of view, you know, my, and, and so, and they, and, you know, it, it kind of changed when I went on the uh, USO tour, the first USO tour. Yeah. And I learned, so it, it was really gratifying and validating that so many of the male service members were the first in line, you know, to have me sign their books. And so it was like, you know, if, if soldiers and Marines and airmen can read my books, yeah. you know, any macho guy should be able to, but I find I'm growing, uh, and I have been doing over the past, you know, decade or so more male readers, but there was a built-in prejudice. Um, and especially because I started with bonafide romances, you know, writing from a romance series, um, that, you know, they, they think, well, it's all that mushy stuff. And even then, after they read it, they're like, you know, I thought you were such a nice girl. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is so funny. And that is exactly right. Cause you're here, you are with this. And I've always come at that. Would, would you say that to me if a man had written that, <laughs> you know, so it's still that there, that gender thing is always going to be there. And I frankly like the gender thing. I frankly enjoy, um, you know, that there's still male, female, you know, this, yeah. this uh, chemistry, this, uh, as you said, the tension and the attraction. And so I enjoy reading it. I enjoy writing it. And if you don't, then don't read me, read somebody else. But, but at least give it a try. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, don't okay. categorically say that's not my kind of book. Right. Right. And I, I, the good news, I guess, is that women buy what 85% of all books. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I bet there are a lot of closet male readers out there, you know, that don't want to admit it. <laughs> and, I mean, and these are, I mean, this is, I, like you said, this, this is not, this is a very, you know, this is a very thriller-esque. There's nothing, right. there's nothing overtly feminine about, you know, your, I mean, uh, you know, these covers. And, and there's nothing, of, you know, that you write men who feel masculine, which I think is important. I think, I understand the perspective from a man who's like, I don't want to read about you know, a man who sounds like a woman, but in the same way, all the, you know, we don't want to read women who sound like. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to keep, you know, the, the, the uh, gender very well defined, you know, and, and I guess that's still, I can't speak to everyone. That's still my fantasy. You know, it's still the, that's still my fantasy. So um that's you know that's that's where I started and and I I like the 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 love story built in but it has to be a really difficult love story it can't be immediate you know they've got they've got issues <laughs> they have that's, to work out that's right well and all I mean and also just to this is not a woman who's this is not a traditional I mean in the sense of the 50s style housewife oh, yeah, no she's no June Cleaver no 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 and none of my heroines is. I mean, none. Uh, I don't. I I like them to be, you know, assertive, confident. Um, they they have their own initiative. They have their own 
goals, passions, and um, I don't think your character has to be interesting to the reader, you know, and um, now if she's a housewife that chops up her husband and puts him in the freezer, then she's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I, I, I heard you say that you started writing kind of on a dare from your husband. Yeah, my husband. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell us about, I mean, so this is, you know, you guys, um, tell me about that, you know, that sort of, that situation. And how has your marriage evolved as you become this, you know, massive success? Well, I, I am divorced now, but uh, my, it was uh, my husband, Michael, um, I had been fired from my job. And, uh, and he said, you've got time and opportunity now to do what you've always said you wanted to do. And that was to write fiction. So you can either keep talking about it or you can actually do it. And it was more or less in the form of a dare. And I thought, you know, if not now, when? Um, and I did have the two kids at home, uh, baby. I mean, they were like toddlers. And, um, but it was also, um, kind of a, I don't know, kind of a proving ground, you know, that I had lost my job and it was like, you know, success is its own revenge. And um, I thought, you know, if I, if I got a book published, then (laughs) they'd be sorry. Right. You know, so um, yeah, that, but I, I did not know I could do it. Um, until I, I started and then I really knew I couldn't do it without doing my homework. And I, I read up on how to write fiction. I read Dean Koontz's book on how to write fiction. Um, I got books out of the library, uh, college professor, creative writing class books, uh, textbooks, and learned there were things like plotting. And as I talked about the elements and the archetypes that are have to be in every story and you're you're not even aware of them you know they just kind of emerge out of the plot and they emerge out of my subconscious but so I had an instinct for it but it still had to be honed it still had to be put in a way that would be marketable you know could it just be a you know because of a a story, an oral story is completely different from a written story. And what you're thinking up is hard to get from here to your fingertips. You know, it's hard to get from here to the keyboard. I sometimes wish we could just put a chord in there. Right. You know, just download it. Well, one of the things you all, I mean, since you started with toddlers, one of the things I think is really interesting and, and so useful as a writer is to realize when you only have a little bit of amount of time, which, you know, my first book came out when my daughter was eight months old. Um, oh. If you only have, you know, a half an hour, sometimes it was all you had was a half an hour, um, but you carry the story around with you, right? It's, I mean, mm-hmm. when you're not at your computer, the story is still sort of spooling in your brain. Right. And I was on a typewriter. <laughs> I bet you're a fast typist. This is before computers. I wrote my first seven books on a typewriter because I couldn't afford a computer and computers were as big as, you know, this room. I mean, and, and so when I got my first one, it was this big clunky, you know, thing, the printer was over here and then had the tower that you had to feed something in it. You know, it was, I don't even remember all of it, but um, yeah, so I was on a typewriter, but I, one of my stories uh, of early, early on, I had taken um, my kids to the circus and we were we were sitting there and they had their you know popcorn cotton candy whatever and i got this inspiration for a a story and i took out my checkbook and that was the only piece of paper that i had and a ballpoint pen and i was sitting there and i was filling up the check you know with 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 notes and i brought it home and i always said i i plotted a story you know during the circus but i can remember when they were little they would come in they would be talking to me and they would say mom you're thinking <laughs> and they knew that i had yeah. i was writing dialogue <laughs> even right. while they were trying to tell me something you know so and I still kind of go into a, you know, a fog. And sometimes I walk, you know, from one room to another, and I'll go 
yeah, that'd be a good line. And I'll rush back, you know, to the computer and type it down before it leaves me, you know. So I think every writer has that schizophrenia, you know. I think it is a form of schizophrenia, isn't it? Yeah. And you you mentioned this also about like, you know, sort of the idea that you, you get to some when they're sort of book is going and everything is working your way that you you sort of almost write as a stream of consciousness that you're right. it's sort of divorced from your mind um is there like a way that you you know some people say oh like candles or a certain space is there a way you can how do you make that happen i i do i like candles got one right here i plants you mentioned you referred to the purple flowers which are yeah. indeed purple it's just <laughs> my shirt and my hair are not purple but the flowers are, um, I always have something living on my desk. Uh, it's, it's an ivy, it's cut flowers, it's always something growing. And then I always have my bottle of water and my uh, scented candle. I'm a real creature comfort kind of you know person. So even in my office, um, it looks, it's in an old home. And so I have, you know, an upstairs bedroom that is now, you know, my office It's full of bookcases and everything. It looks like an office now, but it's actually the building itself is an old home. So I, I like that um, secure feeling, you know, not clinical, but very, all the things that I love. And I'm a very tactile person. So I usually have a wrap on because I'm always cold. <laughs> yeah. I, I I always find my I like to have my office the house is you know I like it to be like 68 but my office I like to be like 75 it's a right, right, it's a right. but I there's something to the ritual right yeah. your your brain smells the candle and feels the wrap and the heat of the room and you know the flowers or whatever and it said okay now this is my time uh this is my time to, to work. work work yeah well I uh and I had COVID about a month ago and I'd had all of my well it was the lightest case oh, just I was so grateful yeah. uh, the lightest case possible I'd had all my shots and everything um, so I it was just 10 days at home you know and I told my editor I said but no worry I'm gonna spend that 10 days working and he said well you can't work when you've got COVID and I said no daydreaming that's 99 percent of the of the job is daydreaming so I sat, you know, in the house by myself in my pajamas every day, just staring out the window, you know, daydreaming, trying to come up with a story. So, um, but I think 99% of our job is just, you know, you have to think it up. You have to make something of nothing. And then sometimes right. a character will say a word of dialogue or something, and I'll be like, who said that? What are the circumstances? You know, wh who put these people here? And I will see a scene and I'll just start writing it. Two books like that come to mind. Sting. I, I saw the, this, these two guys in a bar and one of them says to the other. Um, so a woman walks into a bar and, and I, I heard him say that and I, and I thought, well, he was about to tell a joke. And that's what the who the character turned out to be the hero said, is this a job? I've heard this joke. And he said, no, the woman just walked into the bar. <laughs> and so it was a woman that they were waiting on to walk into the bar, but she didn't know they were waiting on it. And then um, Thick as Thieves, I saw this scene where they start uh, standing in this ditch around a, a bag of money mm -hmm. and they start talking and they say, the easiest way to get caught is to talk about it and I thought who said that and what are the circumstances and I just started writing these scenes having no idea where the story was going to go so sometimes it's just you know I hear people in my head and I had an imaginary friend when I was growing up my mother tells me my, her, her name was Charlotte and she went everywhere with me I, I disciplined her fed her diapered her everything uh, so I still have imaginary friends. Have you written? Have you written Charlotte's story? I'd be curious. <laughs> Charlotte disappeared before I could really remember her, but yeah, I've heard the stories about her. I love that you, because of course both of those books are, I've read and are wonderful. And I know exactly what scenes you're talking about. It's interesting to me that you can then take that. So you have you take that, and then it's a matter of really 
brainstorm, I mean, staring out the window until you figure out what part of a story are you looking at? How can I use this? Yeah. Um, and it's like a combination lock. Um, I play with it, mold it, you know, keep switching it around. Well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what if this character's the hero? No, this has to be there. Or what if she's the heroine? How are they going to be at cross purposes? You know, and, and start doing all that. There comes a moment, and I call it the aha. And I can think of all these great you know we'll have it seen here and i'll have a scene here and i'll have a scene here but it doesn't hang together what is the what's the one thing that i know that the reader doesn't know mm -hmm. and when i get that that is the thread from which all of this other stuff hangs and when i get that gathering thread it's the aha moment when i go that's it that's the thing I know that the reader doesn't. And if, if you finished Overkill, you know what that is. I do. <laughs> yes, I do. The very end of the book. And then, then it all, all, everything else has hinged on that one thing. It's that last, it changes everything again right at the end. And you are a master of that. Um, so do you have these, does, does it ever happen that you, you know, have as you write a, you have this imagine this this conversation this scene you write it down and then you can't get you nothing happens you can't get the aha moment because yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely sometimes ideas don't want to become a story mm -hmm. and they just don't they just languish there and I think okay you know my publisher's got a calendar and he's got a big red circle on the date this book is it so I've got to think up something fast I was in the middle of writing one not in the middle. I had started. I probably had 12 or 15 chapters, maybe, which is a pretty good start. But mm -hmm. um, I had started what it just it was just wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't exciting. I wasn't intrigued at all. And I was sitting at home watching TV one night. And all of a sudden, I saw this woman running down this snowy landscape in her running tight. She's working out. And something terrible happens, didn't know what. And she wakes up alone in this mountain cabin with this tall, dark, handsome stranger. And I thought, whew, this is going somewhere, you know. And so I got so excited. And the next morning, I put aside those other 10 chapters, whatever it was, and sat down and started writing that scene where she she's running. And then the next thing she knows, she can't, she's got you know, temporary amnesia. And that's how I wrote Mean Streak. It started, it started with that. And then when I got into it, I realized like I had gone like four or five chapters and I hadn't given him a name. He didn't have a name. And so I thought, huh, this is that thing that I said, it'll keep me on my toes. I thought, how long can I go without giving the hero a name and and it went like three quarters of the book before we ever learned his name or what he was about and um so it that was a fun that was a fun book to write I liked the setting and 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 of course I got really energized then once I I had this new thing and it was interesting to me it was compelling to me and so that other book just never got finished but I, I got, went on to something better. It didn't want to be a story. This one did. Yeah. Well, 12 to 15 chapters is quite a bit. So the fact that you, you know, you, you knew, I mean, that's the other, the other part of all of this is knowing as, as an experienced writer, when something isn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think when to people, give it up. Yeah, people keep forcing it and keep forcing it. And I think you can tell, right? You can tell when a book really, it, it, it wasn't. Or the reader's certainly going to be bored. So I'm a pretty good gauge because I'm a reader first. Yeah. And I read as many hours a day as I write. And so if I am not, if, I, if I'm not engaged in my own story, if my palms aren't sweaty, you know, if I'm not getting turned on by that first kiss, if you know, if the villain is not repelling me, then the reader is going to have those same reactions. Right. 
and uh, and I also trust my editors. You know, they're they're the first reader, and if if they say, um, "Gosh, it was great! It was great! It was great!" There was just one thing. There was one point. You know, and and so they said, "It's up to you." You know, mm-hmm. you can change. And I go, "Well, why would I?" Because you're the first reader, other right, than myself. Right. And if you picked up on it, you represent, you know, a lot of people. So I listen to my editors too. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And 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 it's they're an important part of this process. Writing in a vacuum is really not right. helpful, right? We, and it's scary too. <laughs> yeah, I think having your editor be your first reader sounds scary to me. But you, you know, you you guys have obviously a really close relationship. Oh, but well, I am. I, uh, it is scary to me because I think, what if it's just, what if I'm way off here and it's right. just awful, you know? So which, uh, that again, that wall of fear. <laughs> yes, that wall of fear that you are still climbing, which I. Yeah, I, but I appreciate that. I think it does make you on. I think it does make you honest, and it keeps your standards very high, which is why you know you have you know eighty. I guess only only eighty four nine New York Times over bestsellers two, over uh, eighty eighty three. No, sorry, seventy three New York Times bestsellers. Ah, we got Overkill is book number eighty four. So I've been at it seventy three. <laughs> New York Times bestsellers. That is, yeah. Well, well, people who haven't, if there's any men out there who've said they don't read this kind of thing, I hope they're going to now try a Sandra Brown and then they're going to have a really big backlist because this is not, yeah, this is not a female. I mean, you're a female author, but this is not a, this is not a female book. Although I don't even know what that means. So that's yeah, sort of seems right. That's, that's exactly right. Why should it mean, why should it be the, the determining factor? It shouldn't be. Yeah, there. If that's somebody's a turning factor, they're missing out on a lot of really good fiction written by women, which is why. Yeah, yeah, we're here. So, okay, Sandra, I this has been amazing. You're fabulous. Um, tell us what's next. Once people devour Overkill, what are you working on now? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm working on. You know how it goes. Uh, the build up to publication is is a busy time too it's our christmas season right um and so uh i've been doing a lot of of course it took down time uh after i finished and then um i uh i had some uh i moved and uh, so i've been waiting for an idea to strike but in the meantime doing all of the stuff that leads up to publication and everything. So as soon as I get back from tour, which will be a couple of weeks, I'll start, I'll start getting serious about it. <laughs> It'll happen. I, I have, I have total trust that that idea is out there for you. Um, so is your process, so, you know, are you on an annual? Um... Yeah. Uh, and I'm pleased to, to say, I just uh, got a, another three book contract from my publisher uh overkill was the third in in a three book deal so now i've got three more years uh but you know and and they would they would love for me to do more than more than one book a year but this is a good pace uh for me um because i never want to short shrift a story just in order to make a deadline and just and i've got such an extensive backlist that it would also be almost cannibalistic you know it would it would be um if there's a such a plethora to choose from, then I think you're not giving focus to the, you know, the book that's in your computer. And so if people are running out of a Sandra Brown, there's, there are a lot of Sandra three. And um, so it's a good pace. It keeps me from getting lazy. I have to, uh, you know, I have to, I get under pressure. I get under pressure and I work better under pressure, a little bit of pressure. Um, but also, I think uh, I would still, if I had two to write, I'd really, I'd cave like a rookie. <laughs> I feel like I would, I would feel so much pressure that I wouldn't get the joy out of the storytelling. And it's the best job in the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if it were easy, everybody would do it, you know, because it's a great job. We get to make believe for a living. And I, I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. I couldn't have done it for all these years if I didn't just love it. It's too hard. <laughs> it's, 
it is. It is the best. It is the best job. Really for it, you really do. Yeah, you have to love it. But also, um, I think so. You must write pretty quickly because if we're going to have another book out, so that works to your advantage. Your skill set is that you. This time, this time next year, there will be a new one. I deliver early spring. Yeah. So it's a pretty short turnaround. <laughs> well, the other thing to say about, you know, your one, one book a year is that this isn't one of those sort of, you know, this is, a, these are hefty books. Your books are not, you know, sort of one singular plot thing that twists, you know, a lot of suspense now is, is, you know, 280 pages long, you know, your books are beefy. Right. And you need a year. Well, I say you get it, you keep your year. I'm all for that. <laughs> well, thank you. thank you. Well, Sandra, I have to thank you so much for being here today. You are, um, I'm such a huge fan and you are um, such an incredible role model for, for providing fabulous stories that, that we want to read over and over. And now there are just a million of them. So thank no, you so thank much for being you here. Thank so much for having me. I'm sorry about the, the color discoloration, <laughs> but we tried and, uh, well, I we just, did. And we know, we know what you look like, right? There you are. <laughs> fabulous. You're, you know, your red hair. It's funny to be on the, so, um, yeah, it does. It's a slightly different tint today, but you know what? You are a stunner and, um, and you know, you're in purple. Purple is a great color on you. I guess you can go away with <laughs> <laughs> in case you need a change um but thank you so much for joining me well, it was my pleasure thank you for inviting me absolutely thank you everyone for joining us on the killer women podcast uh today with sandra brown and i'm danielle gerard and we will see you next time bye-bye